0: Our final formal session for the afternoon, um, before our lovely choir, is um, a talk from Kate Raworth, who I'm sure many of you know of. The concept of planetary boundaries was pretty groundbreaking when it emerged from the Earth system science research um, in the early 20th, 21st century. Um, And Kate was pivotal from Oxfam and other people working together to pull around the concept of planetary and ecological boundaries and then put the, the kind of the human project within that. So I'm really looking forward to her talk. Good, after, good morning, Kate.
1: How are you? Oh, good. That's... I'm very well. You, you guys are rolling down for the day. I'm just waking up.
0: I did make a silly joke about you perhaps being in your pyjamas, but thank you for being out of bed for us.
1: We appreciate it. Well, I, 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 I have to be respectable at least for you. Now, can, can you see the room? I think you can. I can see the room. In fact, but the room probably thinks they're looking directly at me. In fact, I'm sitting right looking at the back of all your little heads. So if you could oh. all just turn around and wave oh. at me, that would make good. Yay. Hi! Oh. 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 <laughs>
2: yeah.
3: Thank That's
0: you. wonderful. Thank you so much for, for greeting us and the back of our heads. So I've actually just introduced you, so I'd like to hand over. So give it up for Kate Raworth from the UK. Yeah.
1: Thank you very much. Can you still hear me? I don't know, you need to put your thumbs up in the air if you can still hear me. Okay, great, okay. I'm delighted to join you. I'm sorry I'm not there in person. So I'm gonna talk today about the journey I've taken over the last 25 years. I went to university 25 years ago to study economics because I wanted to help change the world. I believed I wanted to work for Oxfam or Greenpeace and I thought the best way to do that was to equip myself with the mother tongue of public policy. So off I skipped to learn economics. And I was really frustrated and disappointed by the theories I was taught because I felt that they brushed aside, pushed to the margins most of the issues I cared about. So I spent years working in the villages of Zanzibar for the United Nations, a decade with Oxfam. And after all of this, I realized the obvious, which is you can't walk away from economics because it frames the world we live in. And I believe we're at a time where economics is so ripe for the rewriting that I decided I wanted to leave my job and be part of it. And so I've just spent the last three years writing this book, Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. And I'm going to try and give you a potted 20-minute version of the core messages of that book. Uh, I should start with a health warning. Donut Economics, guys, I'm not talking about this, okay? You don't have to eat these. Please don't eat these because I will get in trouble with doctors. It's just the shape of the donut I'm talking about. It's a metaphor. So I'm gonna jump right in, share my slides with you, and show you the kind of donut I do want to talk about. This, this is the donut. So let me tell you about it. Um, as it was introduced, the outside of this is the nine planetary boundaries of the Earth system scientists, the ecological ceiling of our planet beyond which we cannot go if we're going to avoid putting so much pressure on this planet that we create climate change. Um, Uh, excessive land conversion, air pollution, chemical pollution. These are the planetary boundaries we must remain in if we're going to protect this extraordinary, stable planetary home of ours. Those are the nine planetary boundaries. And I had a bolt of adrenaline the first time I saw the diagram that the Earth System scientists had drawn. But I thought just as there's an an outer ceiling beyond which we cannot go, surely, too, we can bring in human rights and recognize that there's an inner limit beyond which no person should fall. There's a social foundation that every person should achieve. So we want to get every person in the world out of the center of this donut image. Nobody should be falling short on water, education, health, food, energy, on peace and justice, political voice, gender equality, housing. So here we have this green donut shape. Nobody should be left falling short in its center. We need to get everybody over the social foundation. And yet we cannot overshoot its ecological ceiling. We need to find a balance somehow in between those two spaces, that safe and just space for the whole of humanity. To put it simply, how do we meet the needs of all within the means of the planet? So for me, this is one way we could draw a compass for humanity in the 21st century. And if it is our compass, then of course we need to ask, where are the needles pointing? And right now, we are way over the boundaries on both sides. So millions and billions of people in the world fall short on their most basic needs. On, on food, for example, 11% of people in the world don't have enough food to eat every day, which is why that little red wedge is falling 11% towards the center of the circle. Um, on water... Uh, of people don't have access to clean water, and 33% of people don't have um, access to sanitation. So there's two indicators used there. That's why it's stepped. So people are falling short on every single one of the social foundations. And yet we've already overshot at least four of these planetary boundaries on climate change, biodiversity loss, nitrogen and phosphorus use in fertilizer, on land conversion. We don't even know where we are globally on air pollution and chemical pollution. So we could be over up to six of them. So to me, this is the state of the planet and humanity at the beginning of the 21st century. And it's a pretty uh, strong indictment of the path of development that we have followed to this date. I believe we need a new economic story if we're going to turn this around. And one thing I've learned, having drawn this diagram five years ago and been absolutely amazed by the impact it's had, I've learned that if you want to tell a new story, you need to do it with new pictures. Copernicus certainly knew that. In the 1500s, he was watching the movement of the planets, and he knew that Ptolemy here, with his diagram putting Earth unmoving at the center of the universe, Copernicus knew that Ptolemy had it all wrong. But Copernicus waited until he was on his deathbed before he dared to publish his own new diagram of the universe, because he realized that by putting the sun not Earth, at the center of the known universe. He was threatening to upend papal power and question church authority and challenging man's place in the universe. So it's extraordinary what havoc a few concentric circles can unleash, which is why we should think very, very carefully about the diagrams that are at the heart of economics. The diagrams that anybody who's ever studied economics would remember have sitting there quietly in the back of their heads. And even if you haven't studied economics, these diagrams are part of the way you think because they shape the way that politicians, business people, journalists, all of us speak and think about the economy. These diagrams trouble me greatly, and I'll tell you why. Because the students today in universities Are The policymakers and the leaders of 2050, they are going to be the people shaping the direction of humanity on this planet through this century. But they are still being taught these kinds of diagrams, which are straight out of the textbooks of 1950, based in turn on the theories of 1850. And given the challenges of the 21st century, this is shaping up to be a disaster. Because these diagrams wordlessly slip into the back of our minds, into the visual cortex, and they sit there without us even knowing that they're there, but they're shaping the way we think. And they answer some of the most powerful questions in economics that never actually get asked. Questions like, what is the economy? What is it for? How does it work? And who are we? And so I'm going to take you on a whirlwind tour through 20th century economics. And move beyond that and say, if we're going to replace the old story with a new one, we also need to replace the old pictures with a new one. How are we going to get into that donut? We need a new 21st century economics to take us there. Well, there could be no better tour guide of the 20th century mindset than this man. This is Paul Samuelson. He was teaching at MIT in the 1940s, and he wrote the world's most seminal and powerful economics book just called Economics in 1948, well, Samuelson knew the power of the writing textbooks, not seen as a high prestige task today. but Samuelson knew just how powerful it was. He said, I don't care who writes a nation's laws or crafts its advanced treaties, so long as I could write its economics textbooks. The first lick is the privileged one, impinging on the beginner's tabula rasa at its most impressionable state. So watch out because Paul Samuelson thinks your mind is a blank slate and he wants to lick it. And of course, he already has licked it. He's licked all of our minds because his diagrams have been foundational to the way that every economist since him thinks about what the economy is. So in the 1940s, Samuelson was teaching engineering students at MIT and so when he sat down one day to draw a diagram of the economy, he made it easy for them. He drew it looking a little bit like a radiator system With you've got their business and public today, public we were called households, and you've got income flowing round and round like water flowing through pipes. Well, this diagram has changed, but only a little bit in the last 70 years. Today, it looks like this, and it's known by every economic student as the circular flow of income diagram. It is actually the biggest picture of the economy that an economist can draw for you, which is a problem because this diagram, if this is the what. Economists can show, the biggest picture economists can show us of what the economy is. It has blank spaces that are a danger to society. It makes absolutely no mention of the living world, of all the material and energy that's drawn daily into the economy and spewed out as waste and pollution. It focuses in, you see, on households and businesses, with households providing labour in exchange for wages, and then turning that money, their consumer spending, into goods and services. And yes, there's pipes going off by banks, by government, by trade, but it comes back in. What this diagram does is show us only what gets monetized, and that is what the economy is. Hence, it completely ignores the living world and all the unmonetized materials and energy and the spewed out pollution and waste. It also ignores the unpaid caring work of parents, all that cooking, washing, cleaning, sweeping that goes daily into producing and reproducing labor to make it fresh and ready for work at the office door. And it ignores the commons, that place where people organize, whether locally or globally, not with the market and not with the state, but as a community, self-organizing communities, providing goods and services that they value directly, all missing. Well, if you're going to miss out the living world, the unpaid care of parents and carers, and the commons, you are missing three of the most fundamental sources of our well-being. No wonder this biggest picture of economics fails us and its blank spaces come back to bite us. Well, if Paul Steinberg had got to define what the economy is in 20th century economics, what about who we are? That story, of course, goes back to Adam Smith. And Smith had a nuanced picture of humanity because he knew that self-interest was what made markets work, but that our interest in others was essential for making society work. But that nuance was too subtle for economists who came after him, who wanted to create a simplified character of of humanity to put at the heart of models. So when economists such as John Stuart Mill began to create a more modeled version of humanity, they plucked out what they just said was the the self-interest part of man, man as a being who desires to possess wealth. And it's led us to this character we all know as rational economic man. Well, if he was actually drawn in the textbooks, he would have to look something like this. It would be a man standing alone, money in his hand, ego in his heart, a calculator in his head, and he'd have nature at his feet. And the trouble with this characterization is not how absurdly narrow it is. It's what looking at him does to us. For me, this is one of the most fascinating things I learned in researching for my book, because the more... That we are told that he is like us, we actually become like him. Research with students has found that the more they learn about this character, rational economic man, the more they come to value self-interest and the less they value uh, characteristics like altruism and compassion. So what started as a model of man has turned into a model for man. Well, we're going to be more than ten billion people on this planet this century, and if we continue to imagine, justify, and conduct ourselves as rational economic man, I think we stand very, very little chance of thriving together. What about how the economy works? Well, in the 1870s, a group of economists des- were desperate to make economics a science as reputable as physics, and they looked to the physics of the time of Newton with his diagram here of gravity pulling a ball to rest. And so when these early economists began to draw their diagrams to suggest that the economy was following laws just like the physical world, they drew their diagrams in the style of Newton. You can see this attempt to show it, you know, it looks like physics, it smells like physics, it must be physics. And this diagram here by William Stanley Jevons is actually the demand curve which is part of the demand and supply curve, the first diagram every economics student is taught still today, derived directly from this attempt to be like 19th century physics. Well, the problem with that is not just that physics isn't a very good analogy. I mean, gravity, as we can see from the 2008 financial crash, gravity is not a very good metaphor for how markets behave. But the really pernicious effects of this attempt to make economics like physics is that economists started searching for the equivalent physical laws of motion, and they started trying to find economic laws of motion in the scanty data that they had. Two of these diagrams have had huge influence over policymaking in the last several decades. The first one is a diagram drawn in the 1950s by Simon Kuznets. He had a tiny bit of data from the UK, the US, and Germany. He said, I think I see a pattern that over time, as economies get richer, inequality first rises, but then it falls. He gave us loads of caveats he even said it would be terrible if this became an unwarranted dogmatic generalization but of course that's exactly what happened by the time this was drawn as a diagram the mantra that if you care about inequality it has to get worse before it gets better and growth will make it better that mantra is at the heart of trickle-down economics and at the heart of austerity economics today but it's coupled with another diagram This one looks extraordinarily similar. The the economists had so little imagination, they called it the environmental Kuznets curve, copying the first one. Identical story. They said, we've got a little bit of data on pollution, and we believe we've seen a pattern that as economies get richer, pollution gets worse, but then it gets better, and growth will make it better. And this has been used since the 1990s to, to justify the idea that grow now, clean up later. That somehow that richer economies will be the ones with a better environment. Well, if you look at global pollutants of greenhouse gas emissions, if you look at global material footprints, that is not the case. These are two spurious economic laws of motion. They do not exist, but they have shaped economic policy for decades and we need to overthrow them. What about what the economy is for? Well, the beauty of this economic laws of motion was that they justified pursuing economic growth. And here poor old Simon Kuznets come back in the story, because Kuznets was the person who invented the measure that we call GDP today. But he gave us the caveat from the beginning and said, it's scarcely a measure of a nation's welfare. But over the decades since it was invented in the 1930s, GDP has gone from being a desirable Uh, goal towards a necessity. It's become something that economies demand, extract and depend on to have endless GDP growth. We'll put all these diagrams together. And if you hear the caveats I've told you in them, the blank spaces, the missing images, the missing uh, interests, they look like a very flaky set, but very powerful stories can be told with this. In fact, in the 1930s, a small band of economists got together and started drawing up a new economic story, which has been built on this. Friedrich Hayek, Milton Friedman, and they called it neoliberalism. They wanted to push back against what they saw as the rise of the totalitarian state, but their drive for neoliberalism very quickly turned into a push for market fundamentalism. And it was put on the stage only in the 1980s with the arrival of Thatcher and Reagan. And since then, I believe we've been living by the neoliberal story, which stars the market, which we're told is efficient, so we should give it free reign. Finance is infallible, so trust in its ways. Trade is win-win, so open your borders. And the state, while every great story has a villain, the straight estate is incompetent, so don't let it meddle. These were the stars of the neoliberal story. And of course, there are other characters off stage, let's meet them for a moment. The household, which is domestic, so you can leave it to the women. The commons are tragic, so sell them off. Society, as Thatcher told us, there's no such thing as society, so you can ignore it. Earth is inexhaustible, so take all you want. And power, that's irrelevant. We don't need to talk about power in economics, so just don't mention it. I believe this story has led us to this brink of collapse, to the world we have where millions, billions fall short on their most basic needs, and we've already overshot the planet's boundaries. And that's why we need new economics. And with the new economics, of course, I think we come with new pictures. So let me give you a whirlwind tour of what I think should be the pictures at the heart of 21st century economics. First, we begin with purpose. What is the economy for? It's a question hardly even asked in mainstream economics. I believe the purpose of the economy this century must be to bring humanity into this safe and just space, to meet the needs of all within the means of the planet. So what kind of economic mindset will give us even half a chance of getting there? What should today's students be taught if they're going to be equipped to be effective policymakers this century? Well, for the first diagram, I'd like to show them not supply and demand, not Samuelson's circular flow diagram. I would show them this, that the economy is embedded. It's embedded within society or its social, cultural and political institutions. And it's embedded within Earth, within the living world, drawing continually on matter and materials and spewing out waste and sitting in the middle of a river of solar energy. So we see that the economy is embedded within society and the living world. And of course, this comes from ecological economics. But even within the economy, we can see that there are at least four key provisioning sectors of how we produce and distribute goods. Yes, we have the market. And yes, we have the state. But their 20th century ideological boxing match occupied so much space that two other key sectors got squeezed out the household where we all begin every day that place of unpaid care work but cooking washing sweeping cleaning of parents and carers and partners for our children and our parents it's essential to our well-being but it, and it, it underpins the workings of the market and of the state but also the commons where we co-organize together without the market without the state without money even having to change hands, an extremely powerful way where people collaborate. I think it's crucial to begin economics recognizing that there are these four provisioning sectors, because I know I wouldn't want to live in an economy that missed any one of them. They're crucial for, for all the different ways that we want to live together. And I think they all work better when they work together. And then there's finance, which should be in service to the operation of these forms of provisioning. So how would finance work if it was actually in service to the economy, which is in service to life? That would be a very different financial sector from the one we know today. What about who we are? Well, we're not rational economic man. That's far too simplistic a characterization. We're social adaptable humans, not merely self-interested, but also socially reciprocating. We're not isolated, we're deeply interdependent, and we're not dominant over nature, but deeply embedded within the web of life. And the sooner we create this new picture of ourselves, this richer picture, we will stand a far better chance of actually understanding how we can motivate ourselves and engage to create an economy that works for all. How does the economy work? Forget Newtonian physics. It's far better to jump into the world of complexity and systems thinking. So I've summed it up here with this very simple systems thinking pair of feedback loops, a reinforcing feedback loop. Or when you've got more chickens, you get more eggs and more eggs give you more chickens and that spirals up, up, up or down, down, down. And then a balancing feedback loop. The more chickens you have, the more to across the road. And the more that to across the road well, the fewer come back. And so most of the interesting patterns in life, from a murmuration of starlings to the rise and fall of the stock market, to the rise of the 1%, to the collapse of ecosystems, these patterns can best be understood through complexity of feedback loops and systems thinking. So I think I put systems thinking at the heart of 21st century economic understanding. And that means we need a career change for economists. Don't be a Charlie Chaplin trying to pull on the leaves of the economy because they ain't there. Be more like Josephine Baker here, tending her garden. I think of economics as a, a more like being a gardener, stewarding an organic, evolving system. And if you think that sounds laissez fair, you've never actually done a hard day's work in the garden because gardening is about pruning, weeding, raking, cutting, and shaping and designing how that space will be. So if we want a new economic garden... The key principles I think we need to put at the heart of economic design are to make our economies distributive and regenerative by design. Distributive, I mean by this ball, this network, that the value created is shared far more equitably with all of those who help to create it. Redistributing ownership, not just income. So ownership of the land, of housing, of business enterprise, of the power to create money, ownership of ideas, and then regenerative by design so that instead of Taking, making, using and losing Earth's resources, this linear 20th century design running through the middle of the diagram, we turn the loops around and create a circular economy in which resources are never used up, but are always used again. If we put these ideas at the heart of 21st century economics, these are the goals of what we're trying to create, the patterns of design we're trying to create in the economy, which brings us lastly back to that question of growth, because nothing in nature tries to grow forever forever. From your children's feet to the Amazon forest, things grow and then they grow up and mature and they come to thrive. They can thrive for ages. So, But economics never asks the question about when will we have grown enough and be big enough until we belong. The, the economy is predicated on endless growth it's financially addicted to growth through that rate of return and through profit maximization it's politically addicted to growth because no economic leader wants to lose their place in that g20 family photo but if they would stop growing alone then they would be booted out by the next emerging powerhouse and we're socially addicted to growth because thanks to a century of consumerism we've been persuaded that the best form of therapy is retail therapy i don't think any of these addictions are insurmountable But they all deserve far more attention than they currently get if we're going to overcome the economies that we have that have been structured to be addicted to growth by design. And so I think it's time for a new economic story, the 21st story, which stars Earth because she's life-giving. So we should respect her boundaries. It stars society, which is foundational. So let's nurture our connections. The household is core. So we must value its contribution. The market is, of course, powerful. That's why it must be embedded wisely. The commons are incredibly creative. How do we unleash their potential? And the state, of course, is essential. So how do we make it accountable? As for finance, it should be in service. So let's make it serve society. Business is innovative. So we must give it far more purpose than merely maximizing shareholder returns. Trade is double-edged. So how do we make it fair? And power, well, that's pervasive. So we must talk about it and check its abuse. And I believe that this gives us the beginning of a 21st century story, of course, to be told with pictures that accompany that new story. If you agree with me, you might enjoy these videos I've made with some of the world's best stop motion animators we've made for each of the seven ways we've made a one minute stop-motion animation that tells that story. If you like them, please share them, teach with them, share them on Facebook, because I believe that we need to take economics out of the ivory tower, out of the equations, away from the textbooks, away from the physics, and we must reanimate it for the 21st century. I'm going to stop there, and I'm really looking forward to discussing this with you, your questions, your challenges. Let's go somewhere with this. Thank you.
0: I hope you saw all the hands in the air, Kate. Did you see the hands? Thank <laughs> I you so saw much. Hands. All I can say is, wow, I'm really excited. It was lovely to hear you speak about your work. Um, and we've now got some time for questions.
4: Thanks so much for that. That was marvellous. Um, I'm going to put to you a, a practical question um, because I'm in the food space, the food and agricultural space, and uh, we have a theory um, that to shift food, which we see, which we feel should be a basic human right from being a commodity and market-driven and, and, and all of the, the waste and the, um, the vulnerability that that causes on not only people who starve, but people who are malnourished, but also the farmers who miss out. We feel that, the, or we have a theory, that to shift it to being viewed in the market or in the system as a basic human right, we need an economic model around true cost. But you're talking in the, in the that last slide there around um, that the market, we should use it wisely. Um, so is, is, there, is there a balance? Because obviously that dream of a utopian dream of food becoming a basic human right and everyone having affordable access to all food and all farmers being paid fairly for that and all the people involved in the distribution also being paid fairly for that is a little bit, you know, hard to sort of get my head around. Have you got a... A solution to that?
1: <laughs> that would be really nice if I did, wouldn't it? <laughs> no, I don't have a solution to that. And I think food is a really great example of the challenge that we have in designing an economy because um, the economist Carl Polanyi wrote in the 1930s about false commodities. Um, a bit particularly labor and land saying that some things we try to say can be sold in the market. But actually, we're not going to ever be totally happy if we merely leave it to market outcomes. And I think food is an example of that, that a lot of food is um, managed and produced and distributed through markets. But we're not uh, willing to leave it to the market, literally, in that sense, because if people do not have enough food to buy, Uh, do not have enough money to buy their food, we're not willing to say, well, that's the market outcome. We're always going to embed markets within a framework that ensures rights. So I don't have a solution to that, but I think that food is a really powerful example. Of course, it immediately connects us to the living planet, right? We have to produce food in a way that respects and restores planetary boundaries. So that actually makes the food sector an incredibly uh, key one for overcoming the challenge of planetary boundaries because not only do we need to produce more food and enough food and distribute it for everybody we also need to do it in a way that instead of releasing greenhouse gases it actually starts to sequester carbon i'm sure you're totally hooked into all of that but it's a mind flip for those who are only thinking about making the food sector more efficient in terms of production volume which is a lot where a lot of the focus is it's got to be transformed as well to actually contribute to stewarding the planet So I'm not going to pretend I have an instant um, answer. The John Ingram who's in the audience, I don't know if he's the John Ingram I know. There's a guy called John Ingram I work with in Oxford who is a leading thinker on food systems analysis. If he's in the room, don't just stay the night at his house, but, you know, badger him. If it's a different John Ingram, sorry, man, I'm putting a lot of pressure on you to come up with systems (laughs) food solutions right now. Um, But I'm not going to pretend to answer that immediately, but I think it's an excellent example of the rich troubles we have of redesigning an economy that works, and if it doesn't work for food, it doesn't work yet.
3: Now, Hayden Washington is next. Uh, Thank you for your book, Kate, which I finished recently. Um, My question, although I'm an environmental scientist, my question is about ethics. Uh, Given that neoclassical economics is highly anthropocentric, just focusing on humanity, I did wonder in your book where your discussion of rights was just on human rights and your discussion of equality was really about human equality. So I thought I'd just pass the ethics question over to you. What's the question? Well, uh, what about, uh, you know, we're we're one of uh, 30 million species on earth, do not other species have rights and yet the whole discussion of rights was just focusing on human rights, the same with equality. So, I I mean, we have an ethics session here at this conference where a number of us believe we're not going to turn things around in economics unless we actually talk about ethics.
1: Okay, great. So, as you know, in my book, I did talk about ethics, but as you rightly pointed out, I talked about the ethics in relation to economists' presumptions about the effectiveness of their policies. And the need for economists to have far more humility and actually adopt an ethical stance in the same way that every doctor is required to take on um, an ethical commitment, do no harm, respect the patient, uh, consult others when you don't know the answers. That last one would be a good one for lots of economists to start following too. Um, But your question is particularly about the ethics of looking at rights beyond humans. So let me start by saying that the, the donut framework, the planetary boundaries framework into which I embedded the donut is inherently an anthropocentric model. I think you're absolutely right because the nine planetary boundaries that the Earth system scientists drew up is predicated on the idea that the Holocene has been the most benevolent, stable home for humanity. It's the era of the planet's history in which we have thrived and multiplied and we have no knowledge of how to survive outside of the Holocene. So the nine planetary boundaries are predicated on the idea that we want to protect Holocene-like conditions. So from that point of view, it is indeed an anthropocentric um, model. However, you'd say that at the same time as protecting those conditions for humanity, the Holocene is also the home of all living species that are contemporaneous with us. Not those from the past, but those that are part of the Holocene. And so I jumped onto it because to me, on the grand scheme of what I could see as a possibility in rewriting economics, it was the most progressive planetary-minded vision to put at the heart of economic thinking not to leave uh, the, the living planet as what mainstream economics calls an environmental externality. If you're gonna call it an externality, you've already told me how important it isn't. But I start economics with the donut, which is actually putting that living planet and the Holocene, which is home to all of the species we know, at its heart. And as you'll know in the book, I talk about the way we are deeply dependent and within the web of life and not dominant over it. So I don't go as far as I can hear that you want that to go as with any of these things there's a spectrum and whether it's on rights whether it's on how monetized the economy should be whether it's on what's your view on basic income people put themselves on a position on a spectrum partly on partly based i think on how far do i think i can pull this and pull enough of a critical mass along with me to move this thing i chose to go for this place which is is, is Fundamentally anthropocentric, but I believe that better than any anthropocentric economic model I've ever seen before, it brings along and protects and stewards the living world with it.
0: I've got one more question from a gentleman, but I realize we have had no female, wonderful human oh, yeah. being types. So there's. I'm um, not going
1: offline till I've spoke to a woman.
0: Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So I've got one more gentleman, and then I'm going to have two women just here at the front because you put your hands up quickly. Thank you. So, gentleman first.
3: Kate, uh, it's Graham Kenny. Uh, I've read your book. I thought it was fantastic. It should be compulsory reading for everyone here. So there's a few sales. Um, I was Thanks, uh, right throughout the book. You were attacking uh, economic growth, and I get that. Um, but your second last chapter was big agnostic about growth, and I thought that you, if I can put it this way, squibbed it a little bit. Uh, in that. Uh, Uh, I would have liked you to have taken a stronger stand on economic growth. I was just wondering why you did that. Did you have a reason for not going in stronger?
1: Uh, I think I went in really strong, actually. I think that being agnostic about growth is a very radical position because I'm not agnostic about growth and saying, oh, well, you know, we don't know if it's going to happen or not. What I'm saying is we need to create an economy. So what we have today is an economy that needs to grow, whether or not it makes us thrive. It is addicted to growth to GDP continually rising because governments are addicted to it because they need ta- they want higher tax return without higher taxes. They want to stay in the G20. G- uh, companies are addicted to it because they're entirely predicated on maximizing shareholder returns, all the ways in which we're addicted. We need economies that enable us to thrive whether or not they grow. I'm not against GDP going up inherently. I mean, that to me, that's just like obsessing with last century's metric and insisting it goes down. I'm obsessed with creating an economy that's distributive and regenerative by design. Now, in many economies, think of most of countries in Africa, if we're going to have economies which meet everybody's rights and are more distributive, their GDP is going to go up and it jolly well should. So there's going to be great differentiation between countries. And I didn't want to write a book that says, you, 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 you must have a GDP going up and you, 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 you must have one going down. We need to move away from our obsession with this single number going up and down and move towards thinking of these much more important patterns of distributive design and regenerative design. One example, to get a regenerative energy system, China is investing $360 billion between now and 2020 in, in in installing solar energy capacity. That $360 billion will push GDP way up and create jobs and all sorts of things. It'll look great on the GDP metrics. But once the solar capacity is in, it will add so much less to GDP because the marginal cost of the zero... Uh, The cost of generating every watt of energy comes to near zero marginal cost. So you've got a really interesting cost curve of a boost of investment, but then not adding very much in terms of actually generating energy. The patterns will be thrown all over the place. GDP will go up and then not as a result of that transition. So I think we need an economy that lets go of this obsession of which direction GDP is going It's the wrong measure. So why are we obsessed with whether it's going up or down? We need to create an economy that can allow it to adapt to the far bigger principles that we now can see, regenerative and distributive design. So I think actually, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure of the English translation of squibbing. I won't get too offended, but I'm just gonna say, I think it's pretty radical to be agnostic about growth.
0: <laughs> awesome, thank you. Uh, this lady? Okay, thank you, Kate. We've got two more questions and they're from the opposite gender.
2: Uh, Silicon from Orange in New South Wales. I'm interested to know what's happening in uh, academia in terms of uh, how the economics courses may be changing to somehow uh, be more inclusive about some of these ideas or whether they're still just traditional.
1: So, what's happening is that the students around the world are doing an incredible job of realizing that they're not alone in thinking that what they're being taught is no way equipping them for the future they know that's coming. And they have organized and created a movement, which is now, there've been several movements, but I would say the predominant one, if you want to connect with it's called Rethinking Economics. It's not only for students, they're inviting anybody in who wants to be part of Rethinking Economics. My book begins actually with the woman who founded, one of the people who founded this movement. Um, They have been challenging their professors. So then that's really interesting, the politics of what happens there. Um, a few brave open minded universities have embraced that so steve keen who you probably know is a fantastic uh, heterodox uh, open minded economist we've pinched him i'm afraid on this side of the pond he's now at U- kingston university and really trying to open up the economics degree there so it's one of the more progressive courses so some universities have said you know what we're just going to jump into this space and become leaders here but of course the old mainstream big names um you know oxford harvard the london school of economics yale they are so embedded in where their reputations came from it's very hard for them to move Um, and i think the students get a lot of pushback there so the the internal politics of that working out is fascinating but the students are indeed pushing i'm fascinated by um a-level teachers who i've been meeting so a-levels are a high school diploma in economics They're in England. Certainly they are really frustrated because they're very much told this is the syllabus you have to teach. And I'm starting to work with them to create materials that they can use in their classroom so that even though they've got the government syllabus online, there'll be something for them to say, well, from donor economics, actually, here's the critique. Here's an alternative. Here's something else you could say so that they can actually teach their students a broader Because, of course, some of the teachers are as frustrated as the students. The syllabus is given, and we're all pushing to change this system. But as you'd expect, the old guard, the the big names, they're the most reluctant to change. I think if they don't change, they're going to leave themselves as an obscure form of maths. And the relevance is going to move, actually, to departments of geography, to departments of environmental change, places that are actually engaged in the real world as it is.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Okay, last
2: question of the day. Um, thank you. I, I really enjoyed your presentation. Thank you so much, and I'm sure I echo that for the for the rest of the room. Um, my question is: I'm I'm not an e- economist, but I am a systems thinker. So I was really um, great to hear the systems thinkers getting um, getting a. a uh, position there in your in your um, presentation and in your work, um, and my question was: What is fundamental to systems thinking is to take um, multiple perspectives, and and the question of what is the purpose then becomes something that's fundamental to be able to discover. And I was just wondering, and and to to work out and to determine, and it's not necessarily an easy thing to do. And I was wondering what you're opening up by doing that with your model, which I think is a very good thing to do, but what kind of mechanism are you proposing to be able to then be able to determine um, the purpose if you are dealing with multiple perspectives, um, given that we're going from something that's quite simple with GDP to then opening to a much more sophisticated and mature approach?
1: Okay. Uh, Let me see if I can answer that. So, Uh, when I first drew the donut diagram, it was in 2012 and um, it was published in the run-up to a UN conference on sustainable development. And I was just gobsmacked by the impact that this picture had. And I realized that it was creating a sort of boundary object or a convening space for people of very, very different communities, backgrounds, interests to come together and say, yeah, I can identify with this or to debate it and argue with it. But to ask um, if this is at the global scale meeting the needs of all within the means of the planet, if this is one way of shaping humanity's purpose, um, how does this ne- mean we need to change what we're doing? So I realized the power of providing something that people found broadly they could agree with. We pick apart the individual pieces. Um, for example, in the donut, the social foundation, there's 12 elements. I took them from the global sustainable development goals. I crowdsourced them from the world's governments which means they're not perfect, it just means they're internationally agreed and accepted, which gives them great you know, credibility, doesn't mean they're perfect, you, so you could debate it. What I've seen is, I've drawn a, a global version of this diagram, but there's a real interest in, at the level of nations, at the level of cities, communities, people have taken it and said, well, how do we redraw this and make this our purpose? So what's our social foundation here? And what would be the indicators that we would say in this community are the basic minimums for everybody? So that's what I've really enjoyed seeing different communities take it and make it their own. And they're in that process, defining their own purpose. I hope that uh, partly answers your question.
0: So, Kate, we've come to the end of our time with you and we're going to release you into the wild so you can have your breakfast. I seriously can't thank you enough for making the time to join us. You replied to my email within about three hours, I think, when I originally invited you. So I'm really so grateful for your time and I think the whole room is. Um, And I think personally, for those of us who are grappling with the various concepts that we hope will form some sort of foundation for for a lot of our work. Um, Your book is both a wonderful building on the, the work that's been done by others, but a really unique take. I just love your energy, your presentation today. Thank you so much. Everyone, can you thank Kate?